0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome once again to Madam Perry's Salon, the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration. I am your host and groove, Mistress Madam Perry, or you can call me Jen, Jennifer JP. I'm just happy to be here. And uh, thanks to everybody who tried to listen to last night's show. I had technical difficulties, um, and I had some problems uh, a week ago, too, that seemed to be linked to um, uh, some things that... um, People shopping a lot online or whatever, and and, uh, the lines were down, but we're here, I'm here, you're here, and we're all ready to groove tonight, and uh, everything's tip top on the scene, and the studio, everything. Now, I was going to tell you, and uh, I was going to tell you that... uh, Ricky Bird, Ricky Bird, guitarist for Joan Jet and the Black He's a rock and roll Hall of Famer. Uh he sent me some CDs I can give away to you from his his new C D, which is sobering times. You know, um Ricky's been sober about twenty three years now, and he's doing work as um as a counselor, and of course he calls himself a recovery troubadour. But he uh and as as he said in his last album Uh, that he did. He has a song called, I prefer waking up to coming to. Yeah. So uh, we love Ricky and we want to give away his CDs. And so if you send me a message and answer this question, what guest did I have on my show in the last couple of months that said he is a graduate of zombie school? He graduated from a school, an acting school for zombies. Tell me who, uh, who that is, and I'll send you Ricky Bird's CD. And I think I've got some stickers he sent with it and stuff like that, some kind of swag. And let's see, what else? Oh, Arden Marine uh, from the show Insatiable. Uh, she plays Regina Sinclair on it, so say, since, <laughs> excuse me, Insatiable. And, uh, you know, Arden was here to talk about her book, Little Miss, Little Compton, about her uh, memoir about her life in Little Compton, Rhode Island. And she had some bags made, and she told me, you know, if you – she had some bags designed to go with the book to complement the cover, which is a great cover. And if you order soon, you'll get one of those bags free. My friend Kenya ordered the book, and she got the bag from her and said it is so cute. She put the picture of it up on Instagram. Um, and who else we had? Um, Jamie McCollum, the sociologist, the book worked over. He was on here recently. Great show. And also Jerry Mitchell. Don't forget to get his book, Racing Against Time. He was here, I think it was two weeks ago. Jerry Mitchell is the, is the, was a journalist and, uh, in Mississippi. And after seeing the movie, uh, Mississippi Burning, he made it his mission to bring the former Klan members responsible for the deaths of uh, Vernon Dahmer, Medgar Evers, uh, the four young girls that were killed in the church bombing, to bring them to justice. And he worked hard. It took a long time, but he did. And uh and He was a great guest, too, so uh, definitely get his book, Racing Against Time. He's a very interesting fellow. You can find his TED Talk. Oh, last Sunday or a couple nights ago, I was a guest on the Peter G Show. And so if you haven't found him yet, Peter G Show, it's a television. It's not like mine. You know, you have to get dressed up and put on makeup for that. But uh, I was a guest on his show, and I'm so thankful. So go check him out. He's got a lot of good guests on his shows. He, used, he was a musician, so some of his old pals like Steve Lukather and Greg Spilling who you know, are on there from time to time. And uh, he's just a great guy. He's a lot of fun. It ended up just, uh, just feeling like a party. Well, tonight's guest is somebody I, – I, I, actually, I told him yesterday I'd been reading his books for 20 years. When I think about it, I think it's more like 25 or longer. But I am a longtime fan of his work. He is a philosopher, psychologist, actually a forensic psychologist, um, an MD, and he has written several books, but he's best known by a lot of people for his books or his research on people who have had near-death experiences, which is, uh, actually, he coined the term near-death experience, and um, you may have read his book, Life After Life. Um, yeah, I tell you what, let's just go ahead. He's, it's his first time in the genie bottle, so I want him to feel comfortable. And uh, let's welcome for the first time to Madame Perry's salon. And I don't think he heard me before. Uh, this is a podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration. So, of
2: course, I have to welcome Dr. Raymond Moody.
1: Hi there.
2: Hello. Thank you so much for having me on your program.
1: I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. I've just been reading you so long, and uh,
2: uh, I, I cherish Well, I'm everything. a slow reader myself. So I, <laughs> I, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just hey, hey. <laughs>
1: kidding. <laughs> Are you uh, are are you are are you having a hectic time at the holidays, or is it pretty mellow around your household?
2: Oh yeah, you know something, Madame Perry. You will learn it at age seventy six, things smooth out. They really do. I was a kind of driven person in a way. I I got my PhD in philosophy when I was twenty four. Then I taught philosophy for three years. Then I went to medical school, and I had two doctoral degrees by the time I was 31. And so, uh, you know, you're old enough to appreciate that there was something really wrong with somebody who would have two doctoral (laughs) degrees by age 31. And there definitely was. I was just, you know, I just felt driven. And um, I've had an experience, though, as I've grown older. I, I heard Goldie Hawn say one time she said that she had seven years of psychoanalysis and she said what her psychoanalysis did for her was that it changed her from a driven person to a driving person and i kind of feel like that it seemed like before everything was pushing me from behind but now it's just like i do things just because i Want to do them, and I actually get a lot more done. And plus, I've got two kids still at home, and that you know, just as you grow older, no matter how uptight and driven you were when you were younger, you you do tend to mellow out. So, yeah, we're mm-hmm. having a good time mm-hmm. this holiday.
1: Yeah, the things that used to be so so earth shattering, just kind of like, well, I can live with that.
2: Yes, yes, yeah, you know, and I've seen so much. And um, also, you know, after all those people I've talked to, it's literally thousands since I first heard about this when I was an undergraduate student in 1962 by reading about it in Plato. And then three years later, I met an actual living person, Dr. George Ritchie, who had that experience. And since that time, I've talked with thousands of people who, You know, went to the brink of death. Many of them, cardiac arrest, from which they were resuscitated, and um, so I just didn't know what to make of it. You know, I I did not come from a religious environment, and I I, the Plato was the first person I ever knew who took the idea of an afterlife seriously. But um, I appreciated that these people were sincere and were describing the same thing, but I. I just didn't know what whether it meant life after death or not i I never thought into that idea that it's oxygen deprivation to the brain because mm-hmm. during my first year in medical school, one of my own professors um told me that when she had been trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate her own mother, she herself got out of her body and lifted up and saw it the scene from above and Saw her mother in spirit form, as she put it, and uh, saw her mother recede off into this tunnel and into a light and so on, and saw relatives and friends of her mother's who had um, already wow. died, who was there to meet, meet her mother. And so, you know, my, my professor wasn't ill or injured. There was no question of oxygen cut off to her brain. And yet she had identically the same experience. And subsequently, I've talked to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who say that uh, they had the same thing of leaving their body and going into a light and seeing, um, you know, relatives and friends, apparitions. And and yet they weren't ill or injured. They were just there when somebody else was passing away. And I, I just finally, just a few years ago, just sort of threw up my hands and said, well. You know, to my utter astonishment, there is an afterlife. And life is still tough, you know. I mean, it's scary. But um, but at the same time, I've really mellowed out um, in the last few years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I do. Maybe um, I, I just feel like I, I wish I had been this way earlier in my life. Yeah.
1: Well, when... When you first started hearing pe- when people shared stories like that with you, when you first heard such stories, when did you start to get curious enough to to
2: study it? Well, I tell you the truth, it was um, I went to University of Virginia from Macon, Georgia, in, um, at the age of eighteen in 1962, and I went there resolute on studying astronomy. But I took a philosophy course, and I, just reading Plato was—I was hooked. You know, I mean, the name Plato hits with a dull thud to many people. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, I always used to ask my students when I was a professor of philosophy, and I was trying to teach them Plato. I said, "Like, why do you think this guy's writings have been in?" print for 2300 years you know and so you know i mean it's just really amazing stuff and um when i read that in plato's republic uh that this this story of a man who was believed dead on the battlefield but revived and told the story of getting out of his body and going through a passageway into another world then i asked my professor professor hammond about this And he said that the early Greek philosophers studied cases like that, people who were believed dead and revived and had these experiences. And that was enough to get me interested in it because, you know, the idea of an afterlife was so counterintuitive to me, but the idea that Plato would take it seriously was impressive. And then three years later I met this Dr. George Ritchie who at that time was a professor of psychiatry there at UVA, and he had that experience. And um, so that, you know, just as soon as I heard George Ritchie, who's the finest person I ever knew, actually, and I knew that he was sincere. And so that got me interested. And then when I taught at East Carolina University, I taught philosophy, and I began to hear this from my colleagues and from students and so on and you know it's it's inherently fascinating really i think Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i got as soon as i realized that there's plenty of people like this to talk to i started talking with them
1: now you are known as as the man who coined the term near-death experience
2: well that's right and um it wasn't much of a leap i mean you know, it didn't seem right to call them death experiences because the people got back, right? Oh, right. But we do say, uh, you know, people, we talk about people being near death. So that was, you know, what, what I came up with. I had flirted with calling them perimortal visionary experiences. But I told my um, one of my professors, Russ Moores, over there at the Medical College of Georgia, and he said no that's too medical so i <laughs> i um and he was right but um but you know i think that really what i sort of think of the importance of that book was that i i talked about the characteristics of them you know like the getting out of the body and going through a passageway and having one life in review and meeting one's dead relatives and then having various ways of coming back and so on. I thought that was, you know, in terms of nobody had ever realized that there was a common pattern in these experiences. So that was what I was so interested in when I published the book.
1: And and these were people who didn't know each other, who had never heard each other's story. Oh, yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, see, it wasn't, you know, nobody had sort of, figured out the common pattern. And, um, and the reason I think that that book got, you know, is since it's been going on since antiquity, why would it suddenly attract attention in 1974 and 5? Well, the reason was that by then, see, they had developed techniques of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. To such a degree that many, many people were coming back, whereas though it happened in the ancient world, the number of people who survived that were few and far between. But in the you know 60s and 70s, just with all that CPR, there were just many more people. And I noticed at first I started going to these uh, civic clubs in Greenville North Carolina and later Augusta, Georgia cuz you know those grew, and it, then it was an all male province you know but the the rotarians and the lions club and the kiwanis and all and you know they have to have a speaker every Tuesday or Wednesday so um <laughs> yeah. you know I mean as soon as I went to one I'd be invited to all of them and what I Noticed, and these were the movers and shakers in these towns, right? But, you know, it invariably, after I would talk about this, two or three, or in one case, one of these uh, meetings, seven different guys came up afterwards and said, Dr. Moody, I've never told anybody this, but. And so I quickly realized that people all talked about, oh, how courageous you were to bring this out. Well, I'm not <laughs> courageous at all. I. But but by the time that book published I realized that anybody who wanted to check me out would find plenty of cases for themselves. It oh. was just so common. And um so, you know, but I, I was surprised that it got all the attention like it did. Yeah.
1: And and so it seemed like there were so many people who who had this story and then I, I yeah. imagine they were cautious but then but then Yes. excited So that they could go ahead and speak up and not be shut, run That's out of town. That's
2: exactly right. That's a very good term, cautious. Uh, you know, that was a very common thing I heard back then. Was, Dr. Moody, I've never told anybody this, but and mm-hmm. and you know, I, I had a number of people who told me the same thing that they would. When they got resuscitated, they would try to tell the doctor about this, but the doctor would say, oh, that's a hallucination. Don't talk about it. Or else would say, well, you know, that's kind of out of my bailiwick. You better talk to your minister about that. But then some of these people said then they would go to their minister and try to tell the minister. And the minister said, well, that's out of my territory. You better talk to your doctor about that. And that was a very common thing I heard. So, but nowadays, well, but nowadays, you know, yeah, it's generally known. So, you know, people are less reluctant now to talk about what happened to them. So then people feel
1: like there really is more something like, um, well, there is some confirmed evidence that you can tap into um, read some, like a new universal
2: knowledge. Well, I've heard that said. And Mm -hmm. I am, you know, I still am, you know, my areas in philosophy were logic and philosophy of language. So I'm still, I'm so mundane in one way, you know, and I'm still kind of going by the old way of learning by reading books and stuff. And yet at the same time, I hear this from people all the time and in these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests that go on. You know, the books say five minutes. Well, ho, ho. You know, I've known people who were apparently dead for hours and yet, um, you know, are still very coherent and everything. And, you know, i am just always realized throughout my life that there's a lot of stuff I don't know and probably can't know. But the ones with these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests, say that they become aware of what seems to be a whole dimension of knowledge where people are just sort of pursuing the quest for knowledge. And um, one man said it was if you try to imagine MIT and Caltech and, you know, Harvard and Yale and Princeton and all of them just squeezed into one, he said, you still couldn't even begin to imagine what this place is like. So in that sense, that's what I hear from people that, um, you know that knowledge seems to be part of it when people go through these life reviews um it's really interesting that was one of the first things that was really interesting to me and um and later on in, in doing my psychiatry training i quickly became aware um and you know having therapy patients and so on that everybody seems to be chasing something right like some are chasing Power or money or fame or, as in my case, uh, you know, whatever knowledge, but but uh, whatever they were chasing, they said when they saw this review of their life in which everything they ever done had ever done appeared around them in a panorama, instantaneously, like time sort of stood still. And when they saw all these things they did, they had done they They remembered it, but also that they they were empathically embot, embodied or embedded in the consciousness of the people with whom they've interacted so in this situation, if you see yourself doing something mean to somebody then you you feel the hurt directly, or if you see yourself doing a kind hearted action to someone else, then you feel the good feelings and um and this is often conducted in the presence of a, what they call a being of light. You know, Some say Christ or Jesus, or others say God or an angel or a being of light. But they say that this presence um, can see everything they've ever done and yet loves them completely. And so they come out of this, whatever they were chasing before, um, saying that what this is all about while we're here is to, to learn to love. And uh, that's a sort of universal message that comes from this, and also during that case, a lot of people have told me that um that when scenes appear in which they have been learning something that this presence kind of focuses in on this, and people say you don't hear words in all this it's it's beyond words, but they say it's like the thought comes that even after you die, this process of knowledge will continue and i've had a num a lot of people actually say you know the, the process of learning as far as they can tell is is eternal you just go on and on and on learning yeah
1: mhm by the way this is a good time for me to stop and say if you are listening to us live tonight and this is december 23rd 2020 at 8:22 p.m. eastern if you're listening live and you would like to talk to dr raymond moody if you have a question or something you want to talk to them about, you can give us a call at 646-716-9922. And that is a toll-free call in the continental U.S. It's uh, 646-716-9922. And for people who can't make a phone call, maybe they're at a job, they've got to be quiet or something, you know, you can always send me the message on Facebook, either via Madam Perry Salon, or my page, Jennifer Modette Perry, and I will be happy to share it with Dr. Moody. Okay. All right. So, yeah, you're yeah. talking about the life reviews, and then they, um, after that, when they come back, are they changed? Do they feel like they change in, in um, yes. appreciation of life? Yeah. or
2: Yeah, they say that, number one, they don't have any more fear of death. Now, Not that people would die in an unpleasant way, but they all say that this gives them the absolute, unshakable conviction that death is the transition to another state of existence, kind of. And also they say that it it shows you that really what this is all about is learning to love. It's kind of an educational program we're going through. And frustratingly, they say that, even though you see this, you see all the things you've done and how they hurt people or helped people, but that even after this, that it's very hard, as I like to say, to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person, <laughs> in other words you're still you're still a human being um. Mm-hmm. And that yet you've had this. And I will say, after knowing thousands of people like this, they do a pretty good job. I mean, I think that one of the common things you see with people who've been through this is that it puts them on a life course of trying to, you know, a spiritual quest, kind of. And um, I, my friend, Dr. George Ritchie, the first person I ever knew, had this. He used to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning every day and pray and meditate before he went to see his patients and and George was just a thoroughly fine person, you know, and so it does it has a big impact on people.
1: Hmm. Now there was another in Glimpses of Eternity, I think that's the book where you first started talking about shared death experiences.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, and I knew about these all along. But you know, after when Life After Life was published, I was right into my psychiatry residency, and didn't have much time anymore for writing books. But uh, I just kept on working on this and gathered lots of cases of people who had the same experience that I've described, except they weren't themselves ill or injured. They were just there in the presence of somebody else who died. And all of these things that you know you hear from the near-death experience also occur sometimes to the bystanders who say, for example, as as Grandma died, I myself got out of my body and went part way toward this light with her. Or people say that if somebody's dying, the whole room seems to fill up with light. Or people will report um, seeing apparitions of the deceased coming into the um, room where a person is dying, I, I saw that quite a bit in medical school and residency, where the nurses who knew that I was sympathetic to this would talk to me about seeing apparitions of the um, dying people in, in there, and you know, in the uh, in the presence of people who were passing away. And most remarkably of all, I have a lot of cases where the bystander actually. Um, empathically co-lived the dying life review of the person, which oh, I, mean, I think that's probably the most troubling thing I know about this because, you know, I'm, I'm even hoping to recuse myself from my own life review, much <laughs> less the idea that there would be a spectator, right? And, <laughs> and and so that is troubling to me in a way. And yet what people tell me is that um, – No, it's really perfectly natural because I guess, you know, I learned as a psychiatrist, we all pretty much have the same secrets, right? So, you know, Mm -hmm. most of the things you see there. Yeah, and um, for a long time, I thought, well, surely this had to be something who was somebody who was very intimately connected with the dying person. And then a few years ago. My wife and I got a communication from a physician. He was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient. He had never laid eyes on this man. But he said as the man was dying that he saw this holographic or panoramic life review of the man unfold. So it's, um, you know, life is a very curious phenomenon and, um, and I guess, you know, I mean, so I don't want to be sound like I'm monopolizing this. I mean, I, uh, subsequent to my book, physicians all over the world have reported this same thing. There are uh, lots of other um, psychiatrists and psychologists and medical doctors who've, who've investigated this and found this same thing. It's just, it's very common among patients who get resuscitated from close calls with death.
1: So when they do they seem to have a um and you may have already mentioned this, do most of these people come back you said they're they're not as afraid of death anymore. Um, yeah. they they come back calm? Maybe excited well, I tell would the say story?
2: so. Yeah, well that's an interest I don't know that I have ever thought about it before like that, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, by and large, the people I've known do convey that sort of very quality of some, sort of a calmness that comes over them. I guess you probably have heard of uh, Eben Alexander. But, yeah. uh, Eben, it was a 15 years, was a professor of neurosurgery at Harvard. And, you know, you have to be pretty hard driving to be a uh-huh. professor of neurosurgery at Harvard. But um, Eben is just really just so calm and laid back and um, I didn't know him before he had his own near death experience some years ago but uh, just you know an utterly delightful human being in every way.
1: I am going to pause just a moment so that um, maybe Dr. Moody can get another glass of water So can I I'm going to play a little message And we'll be right back And remember if you've got a message Just message it to me If you have a call I mean excuse me A question or a comment for him Or you can call 646-716-9922 And here's just a little message
0: So Chuck Talk to us about Fisdale Being the Knicks new coach What's your uh, thoughts on that Well well, I'll I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who going to coach this team. They don't got no talent on you it. Fit, and I don't man. I don't really feel I talk. That's kind of harsh. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Can now. We'll talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See, Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madame Paris Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry She's a great host I mean she got all these bestseller authors Rostar, all the dip comedians What about people Eagles? that don't have a <laughs> Here we go Real fun of <laughs> real <funny. laughs> But I think she's great And I think people would love her show She got a great laugh She make, The laugh come out of nowhere Like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing It's not terrible
1: All right. You know, sometimes, Dr. Moody, not terrible is the best I can hope for and feel good about it, too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I just uh, I I tell you, Madam Perry, I got to say this, that there's a lot of stuff in psychology about, you know, self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem. Well, what I've learned in my life tells me the direct opposite. I try to keep my self-esteem as low as possible (laughs) because, you know, ego is the really, like, my ego trip was jealousy, right? And I think that you only need one ego trip. And um, to me, you know, if I was saying that I had abandoned my ego because I, Laid on the bed of nails and burned the incense and climbed up the mountain or whatever, that would be egotistical. But the reason I've pretty much surrendered my ego is that I almost killed myself with it, you know. And you know, ego—it's a formula I've used all over the world, and every just like people just immediately relate to this. To me, the equation is ego equals pain. Right? And think about it, whenever your ego is involved, it's always some painful situation, right? So I'm not much on self esteem. I try to keep myself, you know, just trying to I don't I don't want to have self esteem. I would rather have a realistic assessment of the of the world and myself.
1: Okay, well, yeah, that makes sense i'm I'm not laughing at you i've got a somebody's asking me um Kristen has just said that she's enjoying the show, but she would like to hear you talk more about your experiences. Have you had an experience with this?
2: Well, no, really. I came close to death one time. I had undiagnosed um thyroid disease, which went on for twenty five years, as they can tell by my medical records and it Ended up in a horrible situation called myxedema, which is Ooh. profound hypothyroidism. And I almost died, but I didn't have the real full-blown near-death experience. But I've definitely had experiences in my life that um, that wake you up to, you know, I, as a logician, I have to acknowledge that you can't prove any of these things, biological proof but there's certain things that happen to you in life you just um you know you you just come to accept inside yourself that there's other things i i have almost finished a book called god is bigger than the bible and it's going to come out in a, about a month or so i'm kind of writing the last part of the last chapter now and um I just – I never really had much interest in religion, and um, I can't say that I was an atheist, like entertaining the idea that there is no God. To me, it was just like – it was a non-issue like I did. I guess I sort Mm -hmm. of assumed that you couldn't know that there is or isn't a God. But hearing these people with near-death experiences sort of woke me up to that side of life and then prayer came along and i've had these amazing experiences with prayer that well for example um back in 1990 i moved to Tamil mill that had been built in 1839 and it was last rewired in 1950 40 years before well i knew it needed rewiring but um Didn't have the money at the time, so three years and four months passed, and in September of 1993, my wife one day said, well, we can get the money together now for a rewiring, but we didn't have any – we didn't know any electrician. So I swear to God the following events happened. My wife and I held hands by our kitchen sink, and we prayed that God would send us just the right electrician. Okay, uh, the next morning, the phone rang, and Cheryl picked up the phone and said, hello, and a voice on the other end said, hello, this is B.R. Wilson. Cheryl said, yes, B.R., what is it? And he said, well, your number just came up on my beeper. And Cheryl said, well, we haven't had any, we made any phone calls this morning, B.R. What's this all about? And he said, well, I'm an electrician. And Cheryl said, well, come on over, Bill. We do need an electrician. (laughs) So to make a long story short, he went around, he did his inspection, and then he was going out, and Cheryl was putting him in his van, and he said, well, it's going to be a few days before I can get out here to do this because I come from a real close family around here, and we all loved each other very much. And he said, and my 38-year-old brother dropped in of a heart attack the other day. And my mother had a heart attack on the way home from the funeral home. So yeah. Cheryl said, well, B.R., my husband might be able to help you with that. He talks with people who've been through that kind of thing. And B.R. said, well, my mother gave me this book called Life After Life to Read, and it's really? helping some. Really? Now, yeah, yeah. Now, no. not, not, on, not only that. But B.R. is still our friend after, you know, 27 years. So my point is, it's, I, you know, prayer and, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, somebody asked me, do you believe that God exists? I say, no, absolutely not. Because number one, I, Raymond Moody, i am a very limited human being. And any belief that I could form about God would be bound to be off base in one dimension or another. Plus, if you think of that sentence, do you believe that God exists? The emphasis of that sentence is on the word exist, not on God. But as a logician, I could sit down, and take about an hour, but I could go through, explain what the concept of existence means and even show you how to symbolize it. But when it comes to God, see, I think God is bigger than existence. That, you know, to try to, lasso God and put him in a human concept like existence I mean that's and so what I say is I have a relationship with God is the way I look at it and you know you you pray for things and prayer does affect the outcome it really I mean I've just you know and I'm not religious by the way and um so but I I do you know that is experiences like that and and I guess a real, a real experience back in 1991 of actually feeling the presence of God during a time of turmoil in my life, and so yeah, that that kind of thing I've had, but I haven't had in like a like a classic near death experience. But plenty of experiences that wake me up to the reality that this thing we're in is it's kind of an illusion, and you know, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you're in your 70s, you just listen to this, and you say, yeah, he's right, but younger people, you know, they probably sound, that's probably sounds psychotic to them, but (laughs) the older you get, the more you realize that, you know, this life that we're in is not what it seems to be. It's kind of a a story. You're a little too young to remember, but i V. I'm just a kid. Was, you are. You're ten years younger than me, so but no, anyway. No, no, so, no, no,
1: no. I'm I'm thirty years younger than you. This is on radio, okay?
2: Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. But jeez, Doc. Um Yeah, but gotcha. But but it's um you know, it's I, I did a year of geriatric psychiatry and I was I was in my early thirties then and they had this clinic where you know, the people who run the town, they can't come to the psychiatric clinic like the rest of us peons that come in the front door. They have to go in the back door through, you know, and so. Plus, I was older than the other residents, and um, and I was, you know, known for my books. So I was the electee to go in there and do that. And um, so for about a year, I had the, wonderful experience of talking with these old people who were the very accomplished people. And I heard repeatedly them saying um, words to the effect, like, you know, Raymond, the older I get, the more I get this uncanny impression when I look back on my life that it's been a kind of script or story or movie or drama or whatever they say. And um People do develop that. I used to wonder, well, is that just around this town, or is that a you know is it a folk belief around here? But then I heard Joseph Campbell, the famous mythologist, say the same mm-hmm. thing on one of his programs ah, and it, it yeah. is you know it's um you know that's what people come to see you The older you get, you see the sort of story perspective on life or the narrative perspective, and Allie Wiesel. But he, when I was yeah. a kid, he was a Nobel Prize winning writer, and he um, he said God made man because he loves stories, and I I think that's what this life is all about. Where these different stories we live through, and that's so you know it's uh, yeah. life is dramatic. Even your consciousness, you know, your consciousness puts things together in story form, right? Like. Yeah. When something new happens to you, you weave it into your life story
1: true, true, very true
2: yeah I got a couple of other things is. I
1: want to ask you about but, but Vinny from well, but uh, now, north look, carolina i
2: already I already sell hemway products, so if that's <laughs> hey i'm just kidding i'm just kidding I'm just how about
1: kidding. essential oils.
2: Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, that's the new one. All right.
1: (laughs) Vinny from Asheville wants to know Did the guy fix the electricity? You you kind of, she said you left her hanging on that
2: that story. Yeah, no, we got a a good electrician, but we also, even more importantly, we got a good friend out of that. Yeah, you did. I've
1: got two, there's a couple more things I want to cover. Uh, while we're here, I'm going to tell you what both of them are. But by the way, we had your colleague, Lisa Smart, here a couple of weeks ago, and she was yes, just wonderful. Yes. Just she wonderful.
2: She is, she is, yeah.
1: Um, two things I want to ask are uh, about, are, and this is, um, one would be, I'll let you decide where to start. One would be, in your book, Coming Back, you talk uh-huh. about or people asking you about, uh, reincarnation and regression yeah. life yeah. and the other thing the other thing I want to ask you too is I read one of your books years ago about reading um and when i say when I say I read it twenty five years ago, what I mean was I was a prodigy, I was in mm-hmm. kindergarten and reading then okay can mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. okay uh, about uh the 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 value of of a uh, Crystal ball and gazing, and yeah, yeah, yeah. either one of those you want to start with reincarnation and then to the crystal ball,
2: yeah. Well, um, I guess reincarnation, yeah. I when I wrote that book, the reason I wrote that book actually was that all of my students I was a psychology professor at that time, and there was a kind of fad on past life regression, so my students just wanted me to do it for them, and I and I did. I did several hundred people over a period of time, but not with any believing sense of it. I mean, I just didn't know. Um, but, you know, I did. I found out that it's, these past life regressions are very different from what the standard belief is. Like people say, oh, everybody is always Napoleon or Cleopatra, right, and that these people who do this are very histrionic and – and But that was just not true, and I, I was impressed by this. That, but it never led me to think that there really is reincarnation. But where I've come subsequently on that has been with my own kids. And, um, you know, my wife and I don't take our kids to religious services. We lived in Alabama, and we were afraid of snakes. <laughs> and that, that was that was a joke that way but we just didn't you know we didn't take the kids to to religious things or and we don't talk about life after da- death at home we talk about the news and and you know the what what's for dinner and how to pay the phone bill and the kids homework and you know it's i'm not at home I'm not a expert on life after death I'm just a dad and a husband but um but even within that context and since these were both adopted at birth car Carter is now 22 and Carol Ann is 20 and so I had uh, by then I was more observant you know and I both of my kids just kind of out of nowhere brought this up about yeah like, and in and, and ways that I it was almost chilling I like I, my um, son Carter, who's now twenty-two, when he was five, we were watching TV, and I was flipping through the channels, and I flipped through what turned out to be the National Geographic channel, and so I flipped it back because uh, he was like he he got very animated. Like when I flipped through that channel, he said, "Dad, Dad, that's my village." So I, I flipped it back, and it was a documentary on Chinese village life. And Carter started saying, yeah, yeah, Daddy said, this like, before I came to you and Mommy, I lived in China with my mother, Mommy, and Daddy, and other brothers and sisters. And, I. and so I was just, you know, perplexed, and as though to – then he went on, and then he could tell that I was kind of disoriented. Oh. So then as though to – ground me. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, and then I was up in the trees looking down at you and mommy lying in the grass. And I knew exactly what he had talk- was talking about because uh, what the event he was describing was my wife and I were in Greece and we were at an archaeological site and we had just gotten off the plane a day or so early and we were exhausted. And the attendant at this place said, Yeah, just lie there in the grass and have a nap. And we were talking about adopting a baby. You know, and so, yeah, and my daughter too. And so, yeah, I'm kind of, I kind of think that what this is all about, you just live through one story and then you go through this incomprehensible process mm-hmm. and then you're back on another story. And, um, So that's kind of where I've come to on my thinking about reincarnation. But you ask about the crystal ball. This is, um, my my interest in this comes from, I am such a bore, really, because to tell you the truth, all of the things that I'm known for trace back to ancient Greek philosophy. And, um, you know, people say, well, reincarnation came here from the, uh, East in the ni- in the 19th century and so on. Well, that just shows they haven't read about the history of Western thought because reincarnation was in Western thought from the very beginning, like Pythagoras and Plato were reincarnationists and so on. So that was kind of my interest there. But in terms of this uh, thing, the crystal ball, um, the way most people know about that, which is what I had assumed, was that it was a hoax, right? And that was always the the cartoon of the gypsy woman gazing into the crystal ball in the tent, right? And so uh, that was my thought about it until um, I was a professor of psychology and um, back in 1985. And... Um, you know a lot of my students were like eighteen and nineteen twenty years old they were They were there because they had to take a course in psychology, or some of them were interested in psychology right Well, in terms of talking about the unconscious mind. When you get to a certain age, you, that's just a fact of experience, right? You you realize that, like, how did I get into that same relationship with five different people, right? And so, you know, you realize eventually that you're, you have these unconscious patterns in you. But try getting that across to a 17 or 18 or 19-year-old, right? And so that the unconscious, to them, it sounds mythical or even if they're – Uh, if they're hip to psychology it's it's still just intellectualized so i was i uh well actually what happened was i was in this bookstore and a book fell off the shelf and it was on crystal gazing it was published in 1905 and i picked it up and um it's it was it it is an actual psychological phenomenon like many many people when they gaze into what's called an optical clear depth that can be a crystal ball or a mirror that you shade so that you don't see reflections in it or um or just a basin full of water you can take a silver bowl and polish it on the inside and fill it with water and get in a darkened room by candlelight, and many people under those circumstances will see um, visions. Not, and you're not making them up. I mean, you—it's just like you don't have any control of them. They just sort of appear and um, come, and of your their own accord, and almost seems to have a life of their own. You see people and historical scenes and spectacular scenery, all kinds of things. And so I used it to try to, but I would, would, you know, I'd tell the students about this one day and then the next class they'd come and they would sit around a table and everybody would look and then we did that for like 30 minutes and then we would stop and I'd get the students to tell about what they saw and so that makes them realize see that there's an unconscious mind right because they were realizing that well I didn't just I didn't cause I didn't think that and just make it happen automatically that there was there's parts of me that I don't know about (laughs) so that was that was why I was using it in my psychology classes but in about 1988 um Strange as it may seem, the, we, think we put um, logic over on one side of the spectrum, and then on the other side of the spectrum, we put spiritual things, right? That's just how right. we think. But in historical reality, one of the most interesting facts I know is that if you look at the history of ancient Greek philosophy, it's just about the most fascinating story of history. And these early Greek philosophers were involved in these places called oracles of the dead where you would go and you would go through procedures during which you would actually seem to see and converse with the spirits of the dead. And I had learned about this in college through the historians like Herodotus and all and wrote about it, but I never it never entered my mind that it might be something actual. I thought it was just legendary. But in 1988, I read an article in a classical journal about how they had uh, rediscovered and excavated one of these ancient oracles of the dead. And so based on what the archaeologists found there, which was underground chamber where they had a big cauldron surrounded by a banister… And as soon as I read that detail, I realized what they were doing, and they would have, you, they'd go through some preparation process, and then this last day, you would get it. There were torch marks on the on the walls of this place, showing that they illuminated it by torchlight. And I knew already that under those circumstances, that people actually do see vision. So I figured they were just, you know, they were preparing people by getting them to talk about the person who died and so on. And then I set it up myself and uh, you know, it works. I have done, I've guided hundreds of people through this and it's not just me, other investigators read my report on it and um, have tried the same thing. It's it's remarkably easy to uh, set up a, a circumstance and an apparatus where you go through a procedure and you actually do seem to converse and Feel the presence of deceased relatives, and um, I don't do it anymore because you know my interest in it was just to confirm that that's what they were doing at these oracles of the dead mm-hmm. that was so important in the history of early Greek philosophy. Right. and uh, right. but subsequently, it's been used to, as it used to. It was used in the Middle Ages as a, even as a therapeutic modality for severe grief responses and so on
1: yeah and, and i was going to say you know you talk about that about the um uh the, the psychomanteums, uh the oracles mm-hmm. in your book reunions visionary counters part yes. hearted loved ones and i want to stop now to say by the way folks you could get his books on his website life after life it's called lifeafterlife.com that's the website yeah. for Dr. Raymond Moody and also Lisa Smart if you heard her a few weeks ago here uh, you can get her books there as well and know what kind of things they have going on. They, Dr. Moody you keep up with the you're up to date with all the trends you're even doing virtual shows and I wanted to ask you uh, yeah. first let me get your books Life After Life, The Light Beyond, Glimpses of Eternity Coming Back uh-huh. Paranormal, uh-huh. my life in the pursuit of afterlife, reunions, uh-huh. visionary encounters with the departed loved ones, and uh, you've got what the newest making sense of nonsense. And, uh, right, do you, you know, you would tell what are the whimsical writings of Dr. Seuss have in common with near death experiences?
2: Yes, yeah, that's really the key. It's, um, you know, um, Madam Perry, there is a One thing I can demonstrate for sure is that there is a sort of collective cognitive flaw that's built into our cognitive architecture that kind of keeps us from thinking logically about life after death and some other big questions. And it has to do with the fact that, number one, people love nonsense. I mean, Dr. Seuss's books have sold over 600 million copies. And everybody of my age remembers doo-wop music, right? Like sha na 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 and uh, Or oh, people remember Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and scat singing, which is just nonsense syllables. Or people in certain religious ceremonies do the glossolalia, which is nonsense syllables, continued to bring about an ecstatic say. So people love nonsense. That's just a reality, like playground rhymes and all, and Lewis Carroll and so on and so on. But people don't like the word nonsense. And so what this has a very paradoxical effect of sort of closing down a whole area of your mind. And uh, this sounds so extraordinary, but um, I have actually this. I've taught courses on this since 1969, and you can actually take people through a mental process where they will realize that nonsense itself has a structure, that it's not just something unformed. a matter of fact, paradoxically, nonsense is a more complex form of language than ordinary meaningful language. So I just put this all together in my book, um, Making Sense of Nonsense, which is all the exercises I used in my courses, and it gives examples of nonsense in different the 70 different types of nonsense that I've been able to catalog and so on. And the end result of this in terms of near-death experiences is that people with near-death experiences, no matter how articulate they are, they say, I just can't describe it to you, right? Well, what I've done is I've worked a workaround where people can um, learn how to think about things that don't make sense. And then subsequently when they happen to have a near-death experience, it gives them a whole new way of talking about it. So that's kind of my current research. And, uh, I mean, that's not the only reason for doing it. Nonsense is important in medicine and psychiatry and religion and uh, even advertising uses a lot of nonsense because people actually, paradoxically, they'll pay more attention to nonsense than to ordinary meaningful language. So that's what my latest book is all about, and um, I've had a lot of success with it. I, um, yeah, so I'm, it's a subject I was interested in since childhood, and I've always been a Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll fan, and so I f- finally got to put all my thoughts about it together in that book.
1: And I've just started that, so I'm I'm looking forward to to, uh, reading the whole book. Lewis Carroll or the Reverend Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. Yes,
2: yes, yes. Yes, yes. You know, the fact that Dr. Seuss has sold 600 million copies of his books, that means that people like nonsense, right? My favorite line from him, actually, is it's one of his books called On Beyond Zebra, where he parodies um, ABC books. And it begins, in the places I go, there are things that I see, which I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends.
1: <laughs> Ooh.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. And what what he's getting at, which is a reality, is that nonsense is actually a good way to get into spiritual consciousness. You can do all kinds of things, like koans, uh, for example. What is the hand, sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> the point of that is to to set the student off on a try to solve that logically. But when you do, you eventually get to the point where it flips you into a whole realm of consciousness beyond the logical, which is the same thing as in glossolalia or speaking in unknown tongues where Mm -hmm. people just sort of jabber away in nonsense. But it eventually does bring about a I've tried it myself, not in a religious ceremony, but I just, I've tried it. And you know, after a while, you just jabber away, and eventually you do get into this very, very extraordinary state of consciousness that it brings about.
1: I wonder if scat singing and jazz could do the same thing. Well, that's what, yeah.
2: I, I, back in the, when I was a professor at East Carolina, I used to bring Ella Fitzgerald's and uh, and other – Al Jarreau was another one, but all these singers who – and and doo-wop music too, which is a combination of nonsense and meaningful parts. And you can very easily show in you know, a situation like that that these things bring about profound um, altered states of consciousness and – um it, that's why kids do it so often. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a nurse, not a, a playground rhyme that a lot of people remember is uh, one bright day in the middle of the night. Two dead boys got up to fight back to back. They faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A blind man came to see the fray. A dumb man came to shout hooray a deaf policeman heard the noise and came and killed those two dead boys. And, you know, I've just over the years studied that, and it's like people have the most profound um, childhood memories of this. And, uh, you know, this nonsense makes a big impression on people. And uh, we've kind of ignored it just because we don't like the word. But once you really start studying the Structure of nonsense. You see that it has all kinds of uh, medical and psychological and literary dimensions and commercial dimensions as well. It's, um, I have a friend who's an advertising agent. Says it's one of the most um, common, you know, one of the most powerful ways of getting attention is to put nonsense in the commercials.
1: Yeah. Ah, oh, really
2: yeah if well, you remember the well. latest, the latest one the latest one is the one that you remember bought a book, bada a boom. That was all it was, and that, you know they, they went on with that one for a year, and it was just nonsense. But it's a very paradoxical <laughs> thing, but people will actually pay more attention to you if you're talking nonsense than if you're talking regular. Meaningful language. In Atlanta, there was this guy. What was it, Durwood Fencher. He was from Macon originally, but he was uh, he performed this double talk act, and it was like a very wonderful mm-hmm. entertainer.
1: A double talk was that the, those things kind of like a uh, render seller and her. Or- Three susty to yigglers?
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's like you use it in the interrogative mood. Excuse me, sir, can you tell me where the Warbits are and the sarbots are? And people will really – And what happens with double talk is very predictable. People assume that you're making sense, but there must be something wrong with them, right, that they're <laughs> having trouble hearing or that they're losing their minds. So it's a, you know, it's a very um, – Powerful. I know also that they use it in interrogation when you're trying to break down suspects. This is sort of leaked through or leak break down people for information. Asking people nonsense questions is a very um, powerful mind bending technique because it uh, uh, because a, a, a it, since it's a question form, you feel like you you have to answer oh. right.
1: But right, there's not right. any
2: sense made, so it can be very stressful to people. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
1: Dr. Moody, I I know I've kept you longer than you probably not, meant to be Not <laughs> at
2: all. Not at all. To the contrary. i am just really have enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for having me on the program. And thanks for all the people listening in, too. I'm just really uh, you know, happy that I just hope people enjoyed tonight.
1: They are. I've got a message from uh, Tony in Tony in Tennessee, and uh, he says, "Great show. Um, I've always liked his books, and like they're even more now that he's heard that I've heard his explanations." Um, so thank you, Tony. Thank also, you
2: so much, Tony. Thank you very
1: nice. much. Also, um, Scott in Arizona says, "Great show. Another great guest. Thank you so much. I I am already a fan yeah. of." Dr. Moody. so thank you. Uh, thank and you, Scott. We, yeah. That's very nice. Thanks, Scott. Hope things are good in Arizona. So, yeah, that that's a good show. And then uh who else? Um and then Patrick, Patrick and Marilyn said sent me a big thumbs up and said good one. good show. Oh,
2: great. Thanks. Well, thank um, you, Patrick and Marilyn too. Um
1: and yeah. Well, this has been great. And like I said, I'm just so thankful. I, I never thought I'd get a chance to talk to you. Anna, and I'm so grateful that you did. Um, and hope you have a lovely holiday. I don't know what you're doing. You know, Me I'm kind of like you. I'm, I'm scared of churches. I'm not just scared of the snakes. I'm scared of something yeah. trying to do laying on hands prayer.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I love God, but God has never said a word to me about religion. So I figure I'll just go on with what I'm doing. It's like Uh, prayer. I think we were
1: (laughs) talking. Your, your your book coming out is God is Bigger Than the Bible, and I think I had talked yes. to you once about yeah. how, you know, when people, whenever I hear someone talk about, well, God or Jesus has been kicked out of school, well, first of all, I think that's rather blasphemous to say you believe in him and you think he's small enough to, weak enough to be kicked out of a school. But on the other hand, I don't that's think promise. there's anywhere – I know when I was in school, there was a lot of prayer going on. There was prayer when report cards came. There was prayer when uh, – Yes. If the bus didn't get home in time, there was prayer when uh when when a girl was late with her period, there was a lot of prayer then. So yeah, yeah. there's there a lot of prayer going on in schools. Let me tell you.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, as long as it's not imposed on everybody else. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, how are they
2: yeah. going to tell anyway if you're praying or not, right? I don't know.
1: Well, I am <laughs> going to uh, say good night. Thank you so much, and thanks to everybody out good there Good night. Listen,
2: yeah, thank you so everybody much. so much. I've really thank enjoyed you. this.
1: Well thank you. And you know, I'm gonna close with um my song for studio that I'm gonna send to you. And it's um uh, kind of fun And everybody's got swing. Well